The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. This is uh, Bob Pearson, uh, Vice Chair and Chief of Innovation for W2O Group. Uh, We're here at Pre-Commerce Summit Live. And I'm with Haroon Ula, who is actually part of the uh, global policy planning and uh, staff of the Secretary of State. Uh, he's a multi-time author with a new book coming, an expert in many parts of the world, but uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And Haroon was speaking today on the uh, top five global trends and uh, what it means for all of us. Very fascinating session. Haroon, I'd love to have you just kind of walk us through that. Absolutely. Well, Bob, thanks for having me. This is such a great event here. Um, so excited to come out to Austin and to be such a such a fantastic group of folks. The, the trends are, you know, it's I think of it a lot of times it's sort of the intersection of uh, technology and politics and international relations. And so, you know, we thought of them almost as myths. And I thought of it be that way because in a lot of ways it's counterintuitive even to myself. And so we thought of as sort of the trend or myth number one, this idea that that technology is sort of the answer as a solution to extremism. And you hear a lot of that. I mean, we have the best, obviously, we have things at Silicon Valley and all over this country. And so the idea is that, well, would, when we see ISIS and Al-Shabaab and the Taliban, it's just about getting you know, a different type of app or it's just getting a different type of platform. And while there may be some merit to that, I see it as a myth because at the end of the day, you know, the uh, the extremists like ISIS, I mean, they're on SureSpot and on Wicker and on Telegram and WhatsApp. They, it's actually, it's an issue of content and distribution. And they're emotionally connecting with young people on the fences. Not a lot, but enough to keep their recruitment up. And so in a lot of ways, we have to sort of shift the focus and think about if we want to break that brand, first and understand what is the brand, what is it that they're selling, but realizing that technology is not an answer in of itself. So Haroon, this is something that I've, I've thought about a lot. And, um, you know, when you and I are involved in teaching people um, at, within the State Department, I think of like if you're in a brand and you're at Red Bull or, or Pepsi or somewhere else, you always show a lot of respect for the competitor. You study them. You actually um, figure out what they do right. And then you figure out how you outsmart them. But when it comes to people who don't like others, antagonists, bad actors, we tend to dismiss them. And so what really, really what you're getting at is let's, let's study them, understand what they do well, and actually un- understand that enough so we can uh, do a better job in, in our, our debate. Is that ultimately what you're getting at? Absolutely. I mean, you can, I couldn't say it better. I mean, I think it's part of it is understanding what are the drivers for why young people might be attracted uh, to this sort of this alternative pathway. And obviously, we, you know, we, we see things with such disgust and what they're doing. But when you dig deep to understand their brand, and this gets at my second trend, um, is that we tend to think that extremists like ISIS are selling a very dark, dark narrative. That you know it's all about terror and these grisly images and these beheadings and these gruesome things that they're doing. But when you actually look at the data and you look at the what the percentage and you look at what they're putting out on social media every day, you find that over 80% of what they are putting out is what we consider positive messaging. It's a picture of a, a bushel of apples saying the caliphate is bountiful. It's, it's pictures of them handing out candy to kids. Um, it's about governance. Um, and so they are messaging and they're taking a page out of, uh, you know, brand folks in terms of micro targeting, because what they're doing is that they are messaging in English 
to create fear to a Western audience, uh, largely a North American media-centric audience. But English is not even in the top five of the languages that they're most prolific on in terms of social media. It's actually obviously Arabic number one, Russian and French number two and three. And so when you start realizing it, then you say, oh, okay, so if you're a young person reading positive messaging, you are a university graduate, can't find a job, you live in South London, and all of a sudden you watch this video that talks about the suffering and that you can be part of something big, something new, without traveling without a passport, that you'll be accepted no matter what, um, that you're part of what they would think of almost as a Muslim Peace Corps, that now you can see how that may be attractive right. to some. It's actually, it, it can be inspiring and it can be educational and it can be the things that we just don't believe it can be. Right. But it is if you're, if you're ready for that messaging. Something else you said today is you were talking about who was the most, um, had the biggest reach on Twitter, which was a big surprise to people. And then you were also talking about the media habits in Saudi Arabia for youth. Could you comment on both of those? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I oftentimes, because I, I study and I look at what are key influencers putting out on social media in Arabic. And, you know, when I was looking into this, I realized that the number one person on Twitter in the Middle East it's not a musician, it's not a politician, it's not an actor or actress, although those would have been maybe my guesses initially. It's actually a religious scholar named Muhammad al-Arafi, who has nearly 14 million followers on Twitter. He's prolific, uh, not just on Twitter, but across different platforms, on Snap, on Instagram. He does these Snap fatwas. And he's the biggest reason that young people, when we interview defectors, saying we watched one of his snap fatwas, his eight second fa snap fatwas, or we, we saw a video that he put out that was very sympathetic towards ISIS. He's charismatic, he goes straight to the consumer. Uh, he has this sort of ability to, to, he has a change narrative of all the things we talked about that, that tend to be very utopian, very positive. And so, you know, people follow him and they actually get up and buy tickets and they'll leave to go there. Um, and so that's, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of jarring. Well, you're getting at something too, which I think is a very important side point related to that, which is that the Western world thinks of like, oh, well, everyone watches CNN or everyone watches NBC or everyone, you know, and we pick a channel. And I think when we're talking about uh, ISIS and uh, that area, it's actually people that are the outlets. It's not always the group. In fact, it's rarely the group. That's right? right. And this is a great example of that. Absolutely. And, and you have these young, what I think of as content creators uh, that are becoming the, uh, they, they have built up, you know, using, you know, in YouTube. And you mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, YouTube and, you know, Saudi Arabia has about five and a half hours per day. Young people in Saudi Arabia watch YouTube, which is the highest per capita in the world and one of the fastest growing. And so you think about it in a place that's that we would think of as closed off. But have they have this incredible access to uh, to the um, to the online communities, and they're able to see a wide range of videos um, in this sort of marketplace of ideas. And so, people like Mahmoud Al Arafi have millions of hits on their videos that they put out on YouTube or when they post to their own accounts. Right, and I think that's one of the things that we can do a better job of is to study these channels and understand exactly what is working, so then we understand what we can do better. And I, you know, that's that's again, this is how you study a competitor. What are some of the other uh, trends that you uh, feel are very important for us to know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, there's, uh, there's a trend around, you know, one of the things we talk about is that I think people, when they see instability in the Middle East and around the world, they, and I thought about this intuitively myself, we think that, you know, poverty drives militancy. 
that it's young people joining some of these extremist groups that are joining these that are creating instability because you know it's about subsistence about putting a roof over their heads about getting the meal for their family but when we find these young people that are joining these groups like Jabal Nusra, Al-Shabaab, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, we actually find they come from the thin middle class. They come from oftentimes, and that holds true both in the West and, and, and in the broader Muslim world, young people making about $200 to $800 a month oftentimes have university or higher education. And what you realize it's about identity grievances. And it's not about subsistence, actually. It's about these identity grievances is why they connect how they get recruited, um, and that's why the tragedy of Syria, I think, is so is so hard for so many people to watch because they had the largest middle class um, per capita in the Middle East. I think that was one that hit people particularly hard today, where they just assume that it's poverty, and they didn't realize it's actually that thin middle class, as you mentioned, and it's identity grievances. Yeah, and it's people coming from urban areas. Oftentimes, it's people coming from would have higher education, and so then if you realize that, then we would change our approach towards development. We would see other trends, or you know, in terms of how we can counteract this. One other thing I want to uh, touch on was uh, you're an author, right? and so uh, I read The Bargain from the Bazaar, uh, set in Lahore, Pakistan, following a family and their travels through life in Pakistan. It's a very intriguing book, and I, I, what, what got you to write that book? Uh, what, was the, what was the inspiration for you to do that? Thanks, and thanks for reading it. Um, it's, you know, it was, I grew up in small-town America. So I grew up in what I think of as sort of rural America, Eastern Washington State, farming communities, a very small town. And when I grew up, I was inspired by my neighborhood, my community, because people would often ask me, how do you explain a place like Pakistan? For them, they saw Pakistan as almost a Soviet Union 40 years ago. So it's black box, most dangerous place on the world. Um, what are people thinking there? And I wanted to humanize and make dinner table conversation accessible. And, and, and I focused on one family that I lived with uh, when I wrote that book because I wanted to see how do parents deal with the kind of the chaos? How are they trying to hold their family together? And by the way, you know, have the same sort of blue collar values that a lot of people like myself who grew up in rural America also adhere to. And so that was the inspiration behind the book. Um, I wanted to humanize uh, conversations of middle class South Asia um, and, and for people that I grew up with that, that had questions about what are people thinking out there? I know for me, I recommend the book. I mean, it made me, I think, more empathetic to what people go through and uh, really a good read. And you're also working on one that's coming out in 2018. Is that right? I have a book coming out actually um, this fall. This fall. Um, and uh, it's called Digital World War. Um, and it's, it's with the University of Press. And basically, it's a book about some of these trends that I've talked about. It's sort of looking at Islamists and extremists and the fight for cyber supremacy and how that both is changing non state and state actors in the Muslim world. And then uh, last, last question I wanted to ask you would be, I mean, you, uh, you dedicate your life to, to, to the service of the country. And um, what, what, do you, what do you get at? What inspires you in your day-to-day -day job? Um, what makes you do that every day? I and mean, it's very cool to see, but what's inside of you driving you as you do that? I think for me, it's, you know, I, I, you know, I look at, you know, having grown up in a small town America and seeing the sacrifices of people around me that, that um, built, you know, that have built this country, I thought this is the least that I could do to give back. And, and for me, standing behind the flag is the greatest honor I can think of. Um, and it's been, my, you know, I get the most satisfaction out of trying to further American interests, trying to protect the homeland, trying to, you know, keep American national security at the forefront. And, and I want to play my small part in that effort with so many 
amazing and talented uh, men and women Americans that have that have joined uh, across the government, uh, across civil society and private sector. Well, thank you for doing that. And I actually, I really do have one more question. I, since we're at South by Southwest, you know, um, what is your favorite book, favorite band, favorite film? Since we're surrounded by music, intellectual content, and uh, you know, uh, movies. Uh, I that's I know that's a great question. I would say I love Robert Kaplan's book called The Revenge of Geography. And, and I'm a big fan because uh, I don't get to oftentimes read history enough, but it's fascinating to see how uh, you know, civilizational trends come back and are actually affecting us today uh, in the modern world. And so I, I highly recommend it. It's a brilliant book about how if we look at maps uh, of three, 400 years ago, it could say a lot about where the future is going uh, in this sort of chaotic world we find ourselves in. Very cool. Well, thank you very much, Arun. It was uh, great to talk with you. And uh, again, this is Bob Pearson with this is our What to Know podcast uh, with Haroon Ula today. And uh, thank you again for your time. Bob, it's such a pleasure. You've been a mentor and colleague, and I look forward to more adventures together. We will. Great. great. Thank you. Thank you. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.